Thank you for joining us today. On the call are Mike Berklin, Chairman and CEO, Dan Berklin, President, and Barry Zwarnstein, CFO. Certain statements made during the course of this conference call that are not historical facts, including those regarding the future financial performance of the company, customer growth, anticipated customer benefits, company growth, the anticipated benefits from and timing of the closing of our proposed acquisition of ACS Inc., growth in our portfolio of products and features, industry size and trends, our expectations regarding macroeconomic conditions, company market position, initiatives and expectations, technology and product initiatives, and other future events, our forward-looking statements within the meaning of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Such statements are simply predictions, should not be unduly relied upon by investors, actual events or results may differ materially, and the company undertakes no obligation to update the information in such statements. These statements are subject to substantial risks and uncertainties that could adversely affect 5.9's future results and cause these forward-looking statements to be inaccurate, including the impact of adverse economic conditions, including macroeconomic deterioration and uncertainty uncertainty, including increased inflation, increased interest rates, supply chain disruptions, decreased economic output, and fluctuations in currency exchange rates, lower growth rates within our installed base of customers, and our ability to close the ACS acquisition and achieve the intended benefits from this acquisition and the other risks discussed under the caption risk factors and elsewhere in five ninth annual and quarterly reports filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. In addition, management will make reference to non-GAAP financial measures during this call. A discussion of why we use non-GAAP financial measures and information regarding reconciliation of our GAAP versus non-GAAP results and guidance is currently available in our press release issued earlier this afternoon, as well as in the appendix of our investor deck and in the, in the investor relations section on 59's website at investors.59.com. Lastly, a reminder that, unless otherwise indicated, Financial figures discussed are non-GAAP. And now I'd like to turn the call over to 5.9's Chairman and CEO, Mike Berkland. Thanks, Emily, and thanks everyone for joining our call this afternoon. I'm pleased to report strong second quarter results with revenue growth of 18% year over year, primarily driven by our LTM Enterprise subscription revenue growing 28% year over year. Also, we enjoyed a particularly strong quarter for new logo bookings, demonstrating the value of our intelligent CX platform and our strong go-to-market execution. Adjusted EBITDA margin for the second quarter was 19% of revenue, helping drive a record Q2 for operating cash flow of 22 million or 10% of revenue. Turn now to the three key trends that continue to drive our confidence in our market opportunity. First, legacy vendors are retrenching, forcing enterprises to develop concrete plans with an even greater sense of urgency to replace their on-premise contact center solutions. Remember that in terms of cloud replacing on-premise, we believe the penetration is still less than 20%. Second, companies are enthusiastically pursuing digital transformation initiatives to enhance customer experience, cut costs, and increase revenue. Third, AI is becoming a significant catalyst for enterprises to shift to the cloud. Regarding this third trend, Given all the recent focus on generative AI, I would like to recap our perspective on its impact on our industry, and in particular, 5.9. We believe generative AI is the next wave of opportunity for 5.9, with the potential to broaden our TAM. 
5.9 has been riding the wave of AI and automation for the past several years, and we feel we're well positioned to continue to push this industry forward. Not only is the AI revolution a tailwind to our technology and innovation, but it's also a tailwind to our business. We provide software for enterprise clients to manage their customer interactions. As AI drives efficiency and productivity gains in the form of a mix shift toward more automation of interactions, that leads directly to an increase in revenue per customer and a TAM expansion for 5.9. AI and automation is clearly an area of focus for enterprises, as demonstrated by our nearly 80% attach rate on $1 million plus ARR new logo wins in the quarter. Now I'd like to discuss what we view as the three main growth drivers for our business, namely our platform, our march-up market, and our continuing international expansion. Let's begin with our platform. Today I'm pleased to announce an important extension of our Intelligent CX platform as we have entered into a definitive agreement to acquire ACS, a market leader in advanced data integration and analytics. We believe ACS will uniquely accelerate our ability to capitalize on two large opportunities. First, streamlining the migration of large enterprise customers from on-prem to cloud. And second, leveraging contextual data to deliver personalized experiences throughout the customer journey, including using this contextual data in our AI and automation solutions. Let me elaborate on these one at a time. Let's start with streamlining cloud migrations. Using a robust catalog of pre-built integrations, ACS software ingests data from CRMs, WEMs, multiple ACDs, and many other systems. ACS' ability to normalize the entire data set allows the business to transition from legacy systems to 5.9 while maintaining consistent reports, data visualization, and dashboards. This enables customers to run their business smoothly and take advantage of the 5.9 platform during the migration and beyond. In short, the continuity of data and insight provided by ACS across complex environments allows for smoother, large-scale cloud migrations with a faster time to value. Now let's talk about the second opportunity, which is to leverage contextual data to deliver personalized experiences throughout the customer journey. This contextual data often lives in dozens of disparate and siloed systems. As a market leader in advanced data integration and analytics for large enterprises, ACS will further differentiate the 5.9 platform as we integrate their robust pre-built data integrations to expand our platform's data lake. ACS will enable 5.9 to access this contextual data to optimize, predict, and deliver the personalized journeys customers expect. This applies especially to our AI and automation solutions, where the use of this contextual data is critical to the accuracy and efficacy required to deliver joyful customer experiences. ACS customer base includes many Fortune 100 companies and joint accounts with 5.9 including some of our largest prospects and customers, two of which Dan will talk about in a moment. And now I'd like to focus on our march-up market and international expansion. We continue to see accelerating momentum up market with large enterprises adopting 5.9 at an unprecedented rate. I'm pleased to report that we booked a Q2 record number of $1 million plus ARR deals, and Dan will discuss four such new logos, which alone represent approximately $42 million in anticipated ARR to 5.9. As a reminder, $1 million plus ARR customers make up more than 50% of our recurring revenue. 
This march-up market and our continued international expansion are accentuated by the strong performance from our ever-growing network of global partners and their commitment to leading with 5.9. This was reflected by an all-time record for channel bookings, 15 partners that achieved over 1 million in ACV bookings in the quarter, a record-high channel pipeline, and over 60% of international implementations now being done by partners. This global partner strategy is also paying dividends and helping us expand our international footprint. For example, in addition to the recently announced BT partnership, in Q2, we also signed TELUS International as a strategic partner to 5.9, which Dan will also elaborate on in a moment. Lastly, in May, we held our EMEA CX Summit in Porto, Portugal, the location of our new international development hub. I was personally blown away by the energy and enthusiasm at this event by our partners, customers, industry analysts, and employees. Before I turn it over to Dan, I want to spend a moment to share with you our recently refreshed and re-energized mission and vision statements for 5.9. Our mission is to enable our enterprise clients to reimagine their customer experience by providing our intelligent CX platform combined with passionate experts to deliver joyful customer experience and better business outcomes. Our vision is to bring joy to CX. We often refer to this as 5.9 joy, and it shows up in many forms for many stakeholders. For consumers, it means effortless and fluid customer experiences. For our enterprise clients, it means better business outcomes, such as higher customer satisfaction, increased revenue, greater efficiency, and lower costs. For agents using 5.9, it means being armed with the knowledge, data, intelligence, and automation to deliver great customer experiences. For supervisors and managers in the contact center, it means having the tools and applications to engage and manage their workforce. For our partners, it means providing technology and people that will drive success for our joint customers. And for our employees, it means living by our values every day, resulting in a unique and winning culture filled with passion and purpose, and one where we enjoy the journey together. In summary, our goal is to bring 5.9 joy to all involved in CX, as well as the entire 5.9 community. And now, I will turn it over to our president and CRO, Dan Berkman. Dan, go ahead. Thank you, Mike, and good afternoon, everyone. As Mike mentioned, we are seeing a renewed momentum on the net new side of our business, but we're still facing some headwinds on our install base. The new logo bookings were an all-time high for any quarter other than the quarter we booked the healthcare conglomerate, indicating the strength and persistence of the three key trends that Mike talked about earlier. In addition, our pipeline reached another all-time high. Now I'd like to share some examples of key wins for the quarter. I normally discuss three key new logos. Today, I'm going to share a fourth, given that we already disclosed the $8.4 million ARR Regional Bank Q2 win in last quarter's earnings call. The first is a Fortune 50 global healthcare insurance company providing coverage for medical, dental, disability, and life. Over the years, through M&A, they had accumulated several disparate systems, leading to tremendous inefficiency while also lacking the modern applications and automation. With 5.9, they will enjoy a complete omni-channel experience that's fully integrated to the proprietary CRM and will integrate to their existing variant solution using our voice stream API. They also chose 5.9 due to our ACS integration, 
to do precisely what Mike described earlier, helping them make the transition from their legacy existing platforms over to 5.9 while maintaining consistent reports, data visualization, and dashboards throughout that migration to 5.9. We anticipate this initial order to result in over $20 million in ARR to 5.9. The second key win I'd like to highlight is one we touched on last quarter, the regional bank, which booked at the beginning of Q2. They selected 5.9 and will be enjoying a full omnichannel experience with deep integration to Salesforce, ServiceNow, and Pegas CRMs, and the full suite of 5.9 WEM powered by Varen. We also sold ACS for analytics and real-time dashboarding to collect and display information from several different data sources. In addition, they purchased our voice and digital IVAs, as well as agent assist, which will provide real-time agent coaching and autom automatic retrieval of information to create a personalized customer experience. We anticipate this initial order to result in approximately $8.4 million in ARR to 5.9. The third key win is a healthcare company providing operations, staffing, tools, and technology to primary care facilities throughout North America. They had embarked on implementing a competitive CCAS solution when they made an acquisition of a company who had recently selected 5.9. The easy decision for them would have been to cancel the acquired company's 5.9 contract and continue implementing with our competitor. Upon further evaluation, they realized 5.9 was the superior solution and will be using 5.9 for the entire combined company. We will be integrating to their Salesforce, Epic, and Athena CRMs, as well as using 5.9 WEM powered by Verant. They also have purchased our IVA self-service solution for authenticating caller IDs, scheduling appointments, refilling prescriptions, and paying invoices. We anticipate this initial order to result in approximately $8.3 million in ARR to 5.9. The fourth example, which Mike mentioned earlier, is TELUS International, where we entered into a reseller agreement. This agreement also included a replacement of their internal use legacy systems, which serve the BPO portion of their business. We anticipate this initial order to result in approximately $5.2 million in ARR to 5.9. And now, as I normally do, I'll share an example of a customer who has expanded their use of 5.9. This customer, who has been with us since 2017, is a network of independent healthcare providers focused on academic centers, acute care facilities, and research hospitals. Separate from their use of 5.9, they had an ambulatory support center that was using a competing CCAS solution, which wasn't meeting their needs. They replaced it with 5.9 and also added 5.9 WEM, powered by Verant, and our IVAs. This will more than double their ARR spend with 5.9, from approximately $1.2 million to approximately $2.5 million. So as you can see, we're continuing to see strong momentum up market, replacing legacy systems while enabling enterprises to deliver better experiences to their customers. And with that, I'd now like to hand it off to Barry to take us through the financials. Barry? Thank you, Dan. We are pleased with our performance, with both top and bottom line results exceeding our expectations. Revenue grew 18% year over year, driven primarily by our enterprise business, which now makes up 87% of LTM revenue. And LTM enterprise subscription revenue, which makes up more than 60% of total revenue, grew 28% year over year, in line with the high 20s outlook 
we have been communicating recently. We view the drop in the enterprise subscription revenue below 30% as transitory, driven by the subdued growth in our store base. We believe we are well positioned to resume historic levels of growth in this part of our business when, eventually, macroeconomic conditions improve. Our commercial business, which represents the remaining 13% of LTM revenue, grew year over year in the high single digits on an LTM basis. Recurring revenue made up 91% of total revenue in the second quarter. The other 9% of total revenue was comprised of professional services. I will now give more color around revenue. As Mike mentioned, the new logo side of our business, which typically makes up approximately half of our year-over-year annual revenue growth, continued to grow at a strong rate. The deployment of our two mega deals remains on track. We continue to expect the international operations of the parcel delivery company to be substantially deployed by the end of 2023, and the healthcare conglomerate to continue wrapping throughout 2023 with full deployment in early 2024. Additionally, our substantial backlog from other enterprise customers that are not yet generating revenue provide us with good visibility. However, I would like to remind you that for the four deals that Dan discussed earlier will not contribute meaningfully to revenue this year. Now, I'd like to turn to our install base, which continued to be challenged by macro cross-currents in the second quarter, with one vertical in particular facing the strongest headwinds, namely consumer. As a reminder, consumer is our third largest vertical, and it declined sequentially this quarter by mid-single digits compared to mid-single digit sequential growth in the second quarter of last year. This was primarily driven by customers in used order sales, order parts, gifts, apparel, and home improvement. The remaining 16 verticals in our store base, in aggregate, grew sequentially at a similar rate as in the second quarter of 2022. Our LTM dollar base retention rate was 112%, a decline of 2 percentage points sequentially, mainly due to the ongoing macro headwinds causing subdued growth in our store base. We should, you should expect further minor weakness in LTM dollar base retention rate until macro conditions improve. Longer term, we continue to expect our retention rate to trend towards the high 120s by 2027 due to a higher mix of enterprise customers, especially larger ones, which have demonstrably higher retention rate and higher ARPU from our AI and automation and other offerings. Second quarter adjusted gross margins were 61.8%, an increase of approximately 140 basis points sequentially and 110 basis points year over year. This is the first year over year expansion in adjusted gross margins since the fourth quarter of 2020. However, I would like to point out that given the record number of large new logo wins this last quarter, we are making upfront incremental investments to further scale professional services, which may hinder our ability 
to continue to report further year-over-year growth in adjusted gross margins in the near term. Second quarter adjusted EBITDA was $41.5 million, representing an 18.6% margin, an increase of approximately 110 basis points year-over-year. Second quarter non-GAAP EPS was $0.52 cents per deleted share, a year-over-year increase of $0.18 cents per deleted share. Turning now to cash flow, we generated operating cash flow of $21.9 million, a Q2 record, driven in part by continued strength in DSO performance, which came in at 33 days. We have now delivered 28 consecutive quarters of positive LTM operating cash flow, Second quarter free cash flow of $13.4 million was also a Q2 record. We remain optimistic about our potential for continuing cash flow generation given our long-term model, our substantial NOLs, and our low DSO. Before turning to guidance, some comments on ACS. The acquisition is for $82 million in cash subject to certain purchase price adjustments. We expect this transaction to close by the end of our third quarter. The ongoing acquired revenue and margin contribution will be immaterial to 5.9, but as Mike described, ACS uniquely positions 5.9 to streamline the migration of large enterprises and to leverage contextual data to deliver personalized experiences throughout the customer journey. I'd now like to finish today's prepared remarks with a discussion of our guidance for the third quarter and full year 2023. For top line, we are guiding Q3 revenue to a midpoint of $224 million, which represents a 1% sequential increase in line with the typical guidance pattern heading into Q3. For the full year, we are increasing the midpoint of our revenue guidance from $907.5 million to $909 million. As I mentioned earlier, the consumer vertical in our store base faced macro headwinds in the second quarter. Given that consumer is typically our most seasonal vertical in the second half of the year, we are being prudent for now with our annual guidance of factoring in this uncertainty. As for the bottom line, we are guiding Q3 non-GAAP EBS to come in at a midpoint of $0.43 cents per diluted share. For the full year, we are increasing the midpoint of our non-GAAP EPS guidance from $1.75 to $1.81 per diluted share. Both the third quarter and the annual non-GAAP EPS guidance mirror the prudence in our revenue guidance. Please refer to the presentation posted in our Best Relations website for additional estimates, including share count, taxes, and capital expenditures. In summary, we are pleased with our second quarter performance. While the current macro environment continues to temporarily challenge ISO base, we remain highly optimistic about our long-term growth prospects due to our significant momentum up market, as demonstrated by the new large logo wins, our ability to continue capitalizing on the AI and automation opportunity, and international expansion. Operator, please go ahead. 
Thank you so much, Barry. And again, everyone, that uh, we will now go into taking your questions. But before we begin our Q&A session, we, we do want to ask our analysts to please limit yourselves to one question to allow for as many questions as time permits. And we do thank you in advance. And our first question will come from Scott Berg with Needham. Hey, Mike, Dan and Barry, uh, congrats on the nice bookings quarter and thanks for taking my question. Um, I'll make it a multi-part one, though, to get it all in. Um, I, I guess the, the question is, um, during the uh, conference call here, you had a press release on your recent ranking within the new Gartner Magic Quadrant. I, I guess the, the kind of two, the two components in there is, A, what changed this time versus the prior rankings? Because I believe you were not in the leaders category previously, which you have been ranked in the leaders category now. And then second, um, I'm going to, kind of quote from it said, because of specific criteria based on your completeness of vision and ability to execute. I guess, what did they find in there in particular that was uh, that was appealing? Thank you. Yeah, uh, Scott, great question. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're uh, very pleased to be back in the leaders' quadrant. As you may recall, we were there in the past, um, and it's nice to be back and recognized by Gartner as a leader in CCAS. And you know, what changed, quite frankly, I think is recognition and validation of all the success we're having really across our strategic initiatives, the march-up market, right? Those very large enterprises choosing 5.9, uh, our win rates are significantly, uh, you know, uh, just as high as they've ever been, and, and uh, we're winning some of the biggest deals in the market. I think that's one. Our international expansion is another uh, and our AI leadership is the third. We've talked about these strategic initi initiatives for a long time, uh, and I think uh, Gartner recognizes our progress in those. So we're, uh, <clears throat> we're thrilled, we're happy, we're um, honored, but we're also not surprised. Excellent. Congrats on the great quarter again. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. And we will now hear from Ryan McWilliams with Barclays. Hey guys, thanks for taking the question. Great to see the large deal momentum in the quarter. So how does your large deal pipeline look like for the second half of the year? And are you seeing these generative AI tools put more priority on contact center leaders for moving their contact center systems from on-prem to the cloud at this point? Thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one on the pipeline. It looks very strong. Um, as we've talked about earlier, that portion of the market is just opening up to CCAS for the first time here in the last couple of years. Um, by kind of being a first mover and capturing some of those largest opportunities and then getting their validation that we're executing very well, uh, it's got others, you know, turning and, and coming to us. Uh, we saw a record number of RFPs. We've seen a vast increase in the pipeline. Uh, it takes those companies quite some time to get through a, a sales and selection process. And uh, we've got a larger pipeline than ever, and we continue to scale the sales team commensurate with that. As far as AI driving more interest, it's a combination. Mike touched on it earlier in the prepared remarks. Uh, it's a combination of both the legacy systems being you know, longer in the tooth and not getting the investment. And secondly, it's the, the, only, the only way you can really implement the AI effectively and, and do so at scale uh, is to move to the cloud first. So uh, most of them are recognizing they need to get there, and uh, they're, if they're not already on a well into a process, they're, uh, they're accelerating that process. Here's the cover. Thanks, guys. Yep. And we will now hear from DJ Hines with Ken Accord. Hey, guys. Uh, good to see you. Congrats on the quarter. Um, 
Dan, maybe one for you. I'd love to get any color on how that $42 million in enterprise bookings compares to maybe the past few quarters. I mean, I don't think that's a metric you've shared with us in the past. And then the follow-up there would just be, like, anything you'd call out with respect to, to channel momentum? I mean, is that being driven by international? Is it just a maturing of that go-to-market motion? Any any color there would be helpful. Yeah, great, DJ. It's, uh, if you look at the large mega deals, as we've referred to them, um, we have the parcel delivery service uh, as well as the healthcare conglomerate, but never have we had a series of wins of this size. So when you look three or four deep or even ten deep on that list of largest deals for the quarter, uh, we've never seen this many at this this type of volume. So that's why Mike called out the the fact that you know we're over forty million there just among those four. Um, so it's not a it's not the, the super high concentration that may have been the case a couple of years ago. Uh, we're seeing this become more of a norm. Um, so that's great, great sign there. As far as the channel, uh, that's across the board. Uh, we have uh, a very strong partner uh, group that manages and, and brings on new partners um, headed by Jake Butterbaugh. Um, I mentioned him before. He's been with us for several years, for I think four, almost five years now. And we've really scaled up that part of the organization. And it's not just about going out and signing up new partners, but it's making sure that they view us as being their go-to-market uh, first choice. Uh, we, we spend a lot of effort and a huge investment to make sure that we're catering to our partners and making sure that they can go to market and represent 5.9 um, in the right way and that we always make sure we're, we're doing the right thing for the customer, but we're also doing the right thing for the partner and making it easy to do business with us. And I think through some of the channel checks that are done by many of you, you, you get that same feedback. Uh, we want to continue to be in that uh that pull position, if you will. Yep, makes sense. Look forward to seeing you guys in uh, Boston on Thursday. Likewise. Thanks, DJ. And me and Marsha with Morgan Stanley has the next question. Great, thanks. I just wanted to know if you could either quantify or just kind of lay out cost savings on um, ACS and kind of streamlining those uh, cloud transitions. And then just Maybe on that, does it allow you to not have to kind of invest as much in professional services resources just to transition those customers eventually? Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to start on that, Mita. Um, again, the, the beauty of ACS is that <clears throat> they are so entrenched in the Fortune 100 large enterprise contact center market. And that's, quite frankly, they got our attention in these joint accounts that we were winning uh, with them. Uh, they are beloved by their large enterprise clients. In fact, uh, we see RFPs uh, fairly frequently where uh, <clears throat> there's a requirement in the RFP as to integrate with ACS. And we've even heard just verbally, uh, anecdotally, from a lot of our largest prospects that, you know, the one thing that we're going to require from our CCAS provider is that they integrate with our ACS because well, that's how we run our business. So, uh, that's first and foremost something that I want to make sure everybody understands. Uh, they are very, very strategic to us. Uh, they've got a, uh, a fairly sizable install base and large enterprise on premise. Uh, and, uh, their ability to, uh, have these data integrations across so many backend systems is really what allows to streamline this. Remember, we talk about migrations from on premise to cloud as uh, very similar to a heart transplant, right? This is a major business transformation. And the fact that <clears throat> these large enterprises can continue to run their business during the migration with continuity of data 
that's how they run their contact centers. So as they're migrating off of legacy on-premise and onto 5.9, that's really what we mean by streamlining. It's the ability to kind of have continuity uh, across their business throughout that migration time period and beyond. Um, and then the second real leg of the stool is uh, that, you know, contextual data that uh, ACS brings to our platform uh, in the ability to <clears throat> leverage that contextual data across all these data silos in the enterprise to deliver that personalized customer experience. So it's really two very, very significant value propositions and strategic reasons why we did the acquisition. Great. Thanks so much. You got it. And we are moving on to Peter Levine with Evercore. Thanks, guys, for taking my question here. You know, Mike, you, you mentioned something in your pre uh, prepared remarks. 80% of the million-dollar-plus deals in the quarter had AI. So I guess if you look across your install base today, you know, what's the attach rate look like? And, and perhaps, like, what's holding customers back from going all in? Is it they're just not ready internally with the data? Is it is it the macro? Is it budget? Just kind of help us understand what what's really stopping customers from going all in. And I can squeeze in a second is just help us on pricing. I know there's a lot between how you charge and other contact centers if it's on a, on a per, per user basis or is it a consumption model. But just curious if you can share with us the conversations today that you're having with customers around pricing and AI. Thanks. Yeah, sure, Peter. I'll start with the pricing. Um, <clears throat> again, we have eight products in our AI and automation portfolio. They range in terms of pricing as to, you know, most are capacity-based pricing, in other words, per port, if you will, um, or uh, oftentimes it's, you know, we, we offer usage-based pricing as well. So we're pretty flexible across the spectrum of pricing options. In the end of the day, it's all ROI driven, right? And the, the efficiency gains and the productivity gains that our customers enjoy from our AI products is, is very significant. And that's really what drives that price, that price point. In terms of what's, uh, you know, your question about holding back, I actually think that almost every enterprise, uh, that we talk to is very interested in AI and automation. There, there is definitely an education process that has to occur. Uh, most large enterprises are also looking at, you know, how to implement AI across their uh, enterprise in general, not just in their contact center, but how to how to uh, avoid some of the, you know, the, the pitfalls, if you will, uh, that are out there in the press. So I think it's just an education process more than anything. But uh, don't don't uh, I think that 80 percent attach rate to our large enterprise deals is a very good data point in terms of the interest level in AI and automation across our prospect base. Thank you, guys. You got it. And our next question will come from Samad, uh, Samad Samana with Jeffries, whose video isn't quite working. I'm going to bring him on, but I don't think you can see him, so I'll probably just leave him off, um, Dan, Mike, and Barry, so you're not going to see him. But please go ahead and ask your question, Samad. Wow, Emily, thanks for thanks for the lead-in, gents. Um, yeah, some technology issues here, but I appreciate you taking my question. Uh, Barry, just, uh, I wanted to ask about the, the guidance. I appreciate the clarity on, on the consumer vertical and the impact in the second quarter. I think you can see it in, in kind of the, the sequential uptick in subscription revenue in 2Q as well. I guess I just wanted to understand, one, had it not been for that, because I think prior guidance implied more of like a low 20s exit rate for subscription revenue as the year progressed. Um, one, I, I guess I'm trying to understand, is that, the right way to think about it that now you're thinking more like a mid, like a high teen subscription revenue number. 
exiting the year based on the current guidance? And just uh, was it because of the consumer vertical, or is there anything else factored in to not rolling forward the full 2QB? Yeah. Thanks so much. So let me sort of start at the back end over there, not putting through the full amount. That, that's right. Um, we uh, we put through uh, 17% of the total, beating Q2. Um, this is really a function of this pocket of weakness that we had in consumer. Consumer, uh, and we need to be cautious when we go into the second half in these uncertain times. Uh, we have data from our customers. We are highly metric-driven. Uh, we also have uh, uh, macro data. Um, the consumer, if you go by the federal data of consumer spending, it started with a roar in January at uh, 12%. Uh, February went down to 8 and March to, to 4 and then in the second quarter it was 332 uh, for the three months. If you look at, uh, excuse me, if you look at the credit card spending on uh, discretionary items, uh, that too has been coming down, uh, you know, quite dramatically. So uh, we uh, uh, just want to be careful over here. Uh, our retention rates uh, stay very good. Uh, and when that part of our business uh, experiences benefit of the eventual uh, pickup in the macro, we will uh, participate fully in it. So um, the second half, uh, to, to finish off, the second half is largely due to the fact that uh, we did enter into the second into the second half of the year with slightly lower revenue in our consumer pocket. Perfect. Appreciate the caller. Thank you so much. And we will move on to Taylor McGinnis with yes. Akeem, uh, thanks so much for taking the question. Maybe just to piggyback off of Samad's question. So when you think about the second half of the year and then some of the seasonality that you're talking about in these different verticals, any um, color you can give on the contribution that consumer has to the second half? And I know you've talked about um, some weakness in other verticals in prior quarters. So I guess any additional color you can give on what you're baking in for, for those verticals and as a second part to the question, in terms of when we should start to see some of these newer enterprise deals maybe offsetting some of this macro weakness, I guess, what does, you know, the ramp look like from here on, on those as well? Thanks. Okay. So in terms of the uh, contribution to the, um, from the consumer, we assuming something similar to what we had last year and that previously assumed. Uh, we, we just um, don't want to go out too far, so we're being a little bit cautious over there. Uh, there are other 16 verticals that we track. Um, in the second quarter, they grew very similar to what uh, what's happened in uh, in the second in the prior year, uh, with low single-digit growth, and in both last year and this year. And we're putting in similar growth in the second half of the year. Uh, in terms of um, when we would see uh, the kick-in of these bigger deals, they are. As I think somebody said earlier on, we've got now a volume of these deals. Uh, it's going to be a while before they, they kick in, but uh, you, you'll see the, the, the fact that we are reporting the numbers that we are is in part due to the fact that this weakness that we have in this last quarter on the consumer side has been uh, largely offset by the growth in the new logo, which is very strong. Got it. Thanks so much. And William Blair's Matt Sotler has the next question. Yeah, hey, thank you for taking the question. Uh, maybe just a follow-up on ACS. Um, interesting to see that acquisition. Obviously, I think the, the strategic um, rationale that you laid out made sense. 
would love to maybe just double click on how you're thinking about the the opportunity there, whether that's uh, functionally expanding the TAM, right, and any associated incremental monetization you can do there, or if this more so just helps to open up maybe that on-prem TAM, especially that market that maybe was harder to crack, uh, or both. We'd love to get some uh, additional thoughts there. Yeah, Matt, I'll start with that. Um, again, think, think of this as, I don't want to repeat what I already said, but <clears throat> I think one of the big opportunities here or big rationales besides what I've already said is the pull-through value, right? So we would, we always, you know, whenever we make an acquisition, there are obvious revenue synergies that we look at. Um, but I think when you, you think about ACS, the number one uh, you know, kind of revenue opportunity is really the pull through. Our win rates in large enterprise are already very, very strong, but this just solidifies our competitive advantage up market, uh, by having ACS as part of the 5.9 platform. Um, this is something that is very unique in the market, uh, and it's going to be very difficult for competition of ours to have a similar offering. So that's going to allow for pull through, continued, uh, Wins up market and large enterprise for us. That's a that's a big one. Got it. Thank you. You got it. Jim Fish with Piper Sandler. Please go ahead with your question. Hey guys, thanks for the question. Good to see you. Um, going going back to Peter's question on the eighty percent attach rate for for the million plus deals. Any sense as to what that was last quarter of last year at this point, and, and what is differentiating five nines AI versus? The other CCAS vendors in your view, and then Dan, just quickly for you, on that big healthcare win, nice to see, is this going to act like that large parcel delivery company and we'll see further regional expansions given their 50,000 seats in aggregate, or how are you viewing the potential expansion from here? Yeah, great great questions. First, I'll hit the the 80% attach rate. I don't have the measurements from the previous quarters exactly, but I can tell you that's a very common trend in what we're seeing, and it's only been increasing. I mean, as AI and automation becomes that much more important, it's asked for in virtually all the RFPs today. It's presented whether asked for or not, um, and we can find use cases for customers across the board now that we have this full portfolio of eight different applications that we can deliver and combinations where you combine the two and, and deliver a pretty unique use case. Um, so we, we're, we're seeing that and a lot of brainstorming within the new customers. They use it to justify you know, their, their business case uh, to move to, to 5.9 and to the cloud in particular, but they also, uh, in the install base, we can see tremendous ROIs, and so we're seeing better attach rate there, as Mike alluded to earlier. Um, moving over, the second part of your question, now I don't recall what it was. Uh, uh, well, for, so is this going to act like... Oh, the uh, congl- I, I, yeah. I got you. Yeah, the, 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 the account we mentioned. Uh, it very well could. Um, you know, bear in mind these take these transitions take time. Um, as they come onto the platform, they will continue to expand their use of various applications that we did not sell them initially. Um, you know, we have certain things that were pre-existing that we're integrated to. Um, you know, in that case, as an example, ACS was already they were already a customer of ACS. We're doing that integration you know, uh, directly with that as a, as a strategic element. They already have Varent uh, throughout their uh, many, many different sites uh, that's on-prem. We're going to integrate to that via our voice stream API. You know, eventually they'll look to probably upgrade the Varent solution to, you know, our cloud or the Varent cloud that we integrate with. So we'll, we'll be providing many add-ons just like most of our large enterprise customers um, the the kegger on the ads and the expansion that they experience with us 
uh, is tremendous. So when you look at our dollar-based retention rate and you look the, the further up market you go, uh, the higher that percentage is, just because they tend to buy everything on the truck, so to speak. Thank you. Yep. Our next question will come from Michael Turn with Wells Fargo. Hey, great. Thanks. Appreciate you, you taking the question. I think, look, a lot of the questions have been on the initial reaction around uh, the beat um, and the raise, but if I look at the filings, Barry, the RPO metric is up 45% year on year. I think it's up double digits again sequentially. So maybe you can just tell us more around your view of the significance of that RPO metric. Is that becoming more valuable as you move up market and maybe reflective of, of some of the momentum that you're, you're highlighting. And, and maybe you can just help level set considerations we should be making around conversion of, of bookings to subscription revenue over time as well. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. So, indeed, uh, 13% sequential growth, 16, uh, 46% year-over-year growth, uh, billion dollars in total. Um, the, the situation there, though, Michael, is that uh, that only captures part of the picture and a volatile part of the picture. Why? Because it includes only uh, contracts that have more than uh, a year to run. And um, that's not all of our business. Now, we've always said that um, the, the only thing you can really use the RPO concretely for is to see directionally which way it is heading. And the work that Dan and their team have done and the market that they're going into makes it really clear that the direction on the new business is up and to the right. Is there anything you can say around just the composition of top types of customers that are showing up in RPO versus what's the case? I just want to get a sense of multi-year today versus what that used to look like historically. Yeah, um, it is so much across the board. I mean, the context of the industry is a horizontal industry. There is some concentration in our business in terms of uh, healthcare, uh, financial services, consumer, but then a whole smorgasbord of other uh, industries below that. Um, frankly, I, I don't have a detailed analysis of that that I can share, in part because it is not a key management metric for us. Thank and you. If I may add one thing to that, Michael, bear in mind, um, we don't incent our customers or provide additional discounting for you know longer contract cycles because we're so confident in the renewal rates. Our contracts automatically renew each year, every year. So oftentimes we look and say, well, how long is the term of this customer? And we don't know um, because we're just, we put the contract in the drawer and it never gets opened again. Uh, it's an auto renewal. So it's, uh, it's the beauty. And it's also one reason why we have a lot of annual one-year contracts, but we have a fair amount of three-year and five-year as well. Mostly it's because the customer wants to protect themselves against price increases when they do multi-year. Appreciate the details. Thank you. Yep. And moving on to Matt Van Vliet with BTIG. Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the question. Um, so I wanted to dig in maybe a little more on the attach, uh, attach rate and contribution on the AI side. So you mentioned 80% of the larger deals, but can you give us any sense for how much of the, the ARR of those deals is actually sort of tied to these AI features? Um, presume it's up you know, year over year, but maybe more importantly, where do you think that goes in the next three to five years? You know, can it be 20 or 30 percent or, you know, what's what's sort of the upper bound of what people are going to pay for? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up and I'll start it and Mike, you can continue. Um, if you look at the attached rate, yeah, 80 percent, big number. If you look at the revenue contribution, small number, <laughs> very small number. 
And the reason being is we're at the very beginnings of really implementing AI and automation in the right use cases. Today, it's you have a very simplistic, straightforward you know, question that gets asked repeatedly within the contact center. Well, if you automate that, you can let the customer self-serve for it. And that's great. So a lot of customers are looking at deflecting, you know, you know, three to five percent of their calls over. And if you think about the pricing that we've dictated, well, if you, so if you, if you put in uh, six to ten percent of the revenue contribution from that customer because they're deflecting that many calls over, yeah, we make more on those automated calls than we do non-automated calls, but it's still a small percentage. So in three to five years. Boy, you know, I, I, I'm optimistic that, yeah, the, the crystal ball says more and more use cases will become prevalent. Uh, consumers will get more used to and comfortable talking to, you know, a machine versus a human. Um, but for the consultations and the sales, you know, calls and all the other, you know, things that you need to really speak human to human, um, that's where we implement automation to help that human to human conversation. And we assist in making it more powerful and more efficient and delivering data to that agent more quickly and effective and, and more accurately. So there's automation we can apply to help a contact center be more efficient and effective. Um, but across the board, and where I'm going here is it's, it's really hard. We have some customers that go all in and put multiple applications in and it's a much higher percentage and others where they're, they're just barely scratching the surface. The beauty here is over time, we know it's going to increase. We know it's going to be more prevalent. We know some is going to be based, as Mike said earlier, on a, on a per port or capacity basis. We're going to have others that are transactional or per minute or on a usage basis. And in all those scenarios, it's 5.9 software being delivered to help enterprises deliver a great customer experience. And so our revenue per customer, without a doubt, will continue to increase and, and do so handsomely. All right, great. Thank you. Yep. C.T. Panagrahi with Mizuho has the next question. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my question. Uh, I want to ask about the margin. Uh, look, you guys have like 100 plus, 100 bips plus margin, gross margin expansion, also operating margin. Should you expect this trend to continue or how should we think about your investment, especially in the, uh, with this AI opportunity? Uh, and also, could you talk about the issues, like how, how is that going to impact your margin? So um, let's break it into the two components, gross and uh, operating expenses. In terms of gross margin, if you look at over the longer term, it is very clear that that's going to go up. Why do I say that? Um, it's a simple, there are a number of factors, but the biggest single one is the leverage between fixed and semi-fixed costs. And sometimes to understand what's going to happen in the future, you need to look at what's happened in the past. And if you look at the past not 10 years, Nine out of those ten years, the gross margin on our subscription business uh, expanded. The only exception was when we were doing some heavy investments in the cloud and in international. And um, the uh, rough numbers, software already accounts for approximately 75% of the total revenue. So, and it's a growing proportion. And when we were in public, it was certainly less than 60%. So we have that tailwind. Currently, uh, we're in the lower 70s. Um, but uh, on our way to the 80s, like uh, we've demonstrated, we can improve over time. The, um, the near term, though, uh, on subscription margins and gross margins is that it's very revenue dependent, uh, as I just alluded to. And we are making some additional investments, particularly uh, 
while Dan is bringing in these, these mega deals, they require some incremental uh, investment until we really get scaled fully. Um, in terms of the uh, EBITDA margin, we're very serene over there. Uh, we've got a long-term model that for, if you take all three components, we had 47%. Um, this is up to about 2027. We're currently at 43. So we can actually still go up and uh, still make our 23% EBITDA margin that we're anticipating. Thank you. Moving on to Will Power with Baird. Okay, great. Thanks for taking the question. I think uh, probably for Dan, uh, great to see, you know, the multitude of new, you know, big wins. Maybe just uh, zeroing in on the, the Fortune 50 healthcare win. It would be great just to understand kind of what that process looked like, who you replaced, I, you know, I'm sure you competed with your competitors. What really kind of helped you stand apart there? And this seems to be part of a string of healthcare wins. Maybe you know, the color more broadly, what's going on with healthcare for you? I mean, <laughs> reference accounts probably help. And I guess the extension of that is how do you replicate that in these other verticals? Yeah, no, great, great question. Well, appreciate it. And the, if you look at the upmarket expansion and, and the penetration we're making across many verticals, you know, some that are very prevalent with large contact centers are, are certainly healthcare and financial services, large consumer product companies. I mean, think about who we all as consumers contact every day, right? Healthcare is one that's not, not going away, uh, you know, ever, um, especially as our population grows older. So if you look at that, you know, the, the insurance company that we sold, uh, you know, across the board has several legacy systems. Uh, it wasn't one particular one, but it's the typical, you know, three that we've talked about uh, in the past. And and that's the, the issue, right? They, they've grown. The healthcare companies and insurance companies have all done M&A activity over the years. And you get these, you know, systems that are a decade or two old, and they don't do a whole lot. And what they do, they do it for that given building, right? That They're, they're premise-based systems that operate for that one set of, uh, of resources or users that are in that facility. And that creates silos of efficiency, small ones. And that creates great inefficiency when you think about what a virtual contact center can do like 5.9 because just the sheer um, moving of calls from the cloud straight to, you know, the resources as if they're under one roof uh, is a tremendous saver that we've had for years. Well, they now can take advantage of that. Um, they also can take advantage of all the AI and automation that we deliver from the cloud. So um, it's a great vertical for us. Uh, it's it's one that's leaning into to CCAS right now, primarily because of those uh, AI and automation solutions and the, the old legacy platforms they're on. Um, but also it's one that they're leaning into because they 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 are going through a rapid change themselves in M&A activity and want to be want to have the flexibility to do so in the future. Thank you. Yep. And our next question will come from Deutsche Bank's Matthew Nicknam. Hey, guys. Thank you for uh, taking the question. So, uh, obviously, new logos, you talked about a very strong quarter. Um, can you talk a little bit about where you're taking share from, how it's evolved the last few quarters, and then just any color you can provide on linearity of bookings uh, during 2Q? Thanks. Yeah, taking share, um, you know, it's still primarily moving off of the legacy uh, Avaya, Cisco, Genesis. Uh, you know, Genesis has a massive, you know, they're also a cloud competitor, but they have a massive install base. Some estimate over 2 million seats. 
out there that they've indicated are being end of life to need to be replaced. But they're going to get a big share of that. Uh, they've already demonstrated that in some of the figures that they've already disclosed. But we're going to get some too. It's an opportunity for most to go shopping and, and really put out an RFP and see what's in the market. And uh, we love uh, that opportunity and we get a great share of those uh, those uh, uh, opportunities. So it's it's those three and then on occasion, we do find that there's CCAS providers that have either gone through a partner that wasn't really astute and up to speed on being able to really maximize the value uh, for that company to extract the value for that product. Um, and sometimes it's just the wrong fit uh, for the enterprise, and so they do make a change. So we do have CCAS providers uh, that we replace. And uh, one example I gave was, you know, uh, in the prepared remarks was a company that had already embarked on a competitor uh, implementation of ours. And the the company that they acquired had made a recent decision prior to that to go with 5.9, but hadn't started an implementation. So they basically, you know, contacted us to cancel that contract. And uh, we asked them to take a closer look and give us a chance and evaluate the two side by side, even though they were several months into another implementation. And uh, they ultimately made the decision that we were the better fit for them. And, uh, and they went our way. And just on linearity, any any color there over the course of the quarter? Um, you know, on the course of the quarter, you know, linearity in our business, I, I'd love to achieve it. <laughs> I've, uh, for a few decades now, strived for that. The deals, you know, at the lower end of the market, we can get more linearity and more predictability because we see the lead flow and the sales cycle, and we know our close rates are very consistent. Uh, on the high end of the market, it's really tough. It's lumpy because we have these big deals uh, that, you know, make a huge swing. Uh, we've had quarters where, you know, even talking about the top three or four, we've had quarters where that number's far lower than and other quarters where we've we've dwarfed it with some big numbers like this one. And uh, so it, it's it's hard to get linearity until we get the higher volume. Uh, but that's something we're certainly striving for. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we do have time for one additional question, which will come from Catherine Trebnik with Rosenblatt. Uh Oh, hi. Thank you very much for taking my question. Hey, um, Dan, could you piece part a little bit? You did WWT, BT, and TELUS as all new partners in the last couple of months. How long does it actually take to put the go-to-market strategy and generate revenue from these big partners? Yeah, wonderful question, Catherine. And that's something, and I'm glad you mentioned it, because it is something we want to make sure folks realize that it's not a sign them up and open the floodgates. It's uh, you got to train them, educate them, have them make the investments in their go-to-market and some of the back-office support uh, that they're going to provide to the customers. In many cases, these large service providers, like the ones you mentioned, they're doing this not just to bring product to their customers, but to really get services around them. We have something we've referred to as project pull-through, which is enabling these very types of partners to be able to enable the implementation uh, services, professional services, if you will, as well as ongoing support for at least Tier 1 and Tier 2. Um, that gives us, in the long run, uh, better margins. It gives them an ability to make money off of the services that they're used to delivering on their legacy solutions. Um, and it gives them incentive to want to bring us into their opportunities because they recognize, aha, I'm going to get the services business for this. It's not just the margin on the markup. So how long does it take? It varies, but usually it's at least six to nine months before we really start to see a pipeline built up 
and probably a year to a year and a half before we see some revenue contribution. Because again, there's a sales cycle there, and uh, most of these are going after customers that are on the larger end of the scale. And congratulations on the acquisition. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Yes, thank, thank you, President. Well, and again, everyone, that does conclude today's Q&A. So I'll turn things back to Mike for closing uh, closing comments. Mike, over to you. Yeah, thank you for joining us, everyone, as we uh, cross the mid-year mark. Um, and uh, just I, I couldn't be more thrilled than, the, than what I've seen uh, with what I've seen in terms of momentum in our business. Uh, we talked a little bit about it um, in terms of upmarket momentum, the deals that Dan talked about. It's, uh, it's an exciting time for five nights, exciting time in our industry, and uh, we look forward to uh, continuing the conversation with you all. Thanks for joining us.